Today's scripture comes from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall never shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 10 is where we're at as we are continuing our series, Preaching Through the Gospel According to Mark. And I'd encourage you to have a Bible with you. As always, if you forget yours or don't have a hand to, to bring one in with you, we always have Bibles in the back uh, there at the communion tables that you can pick up and grab. And so if you have one of the church Bibles, uh, Mark chapter 10 is found on page 938. And uh, we'll have some of the scriptures up on the screen, but the, the main text uh, I would encourage you to have in your hand. Feel free to use your phone uh, or device or anything else to get it there in front of you. And in our text this morning, Jesus is going to teach us about marriage, and he's going to teach us about divorce. And my heart has been heavy uh, leading up to this passage really for the last couple of months as I knew that we were slowly but surely making our way through Mark. We were going to get to this passage eventually and and uh, my heart has been heavy about this sermon because um, I know that amongst us there are some deep painful wounds uh, that divorces have left on our hearts. And I would assume that most all of us we have either we have either been divorced we have either had parents who have been divorced or we have had close family and friends who have gone through a divorce. And so all of us, all of us come to a passage like this with some sort of painful past memory, some sort of painful wound that we will need to, to open back up this morning. And so that's going to be kind of a painful process. Uh, but, but listen, we need to do this. We need to open up these wounds so that the great physician can do his work by his spirit through his word on these wounds that divorces have left on our hearts and in our lives. And so therefore this morning, we're going to start out by asking the Holy Spirit to help us. We got to ask for his help. We need, we need for him to help us really hear what Jesus is teaching us about his purpose for marriage when he first created it and instituted it. We're going to need the Spirit to help us hear how our sin then messes our marriages up. And then we'll need the Spirit's help to hear how the gospel provides the hope and the transforming power that we will need in our marriages and in our lives. 
You see, the Bible starts with a marriage and the Bible ends with a marriage. And we're going to look at both this morning. But then all throughout the scripture, all in between those two marriages, we see how sin has distorted these relationships that we were to have with one another and this relationship that we were to have with God. But listen, the Bible also teaches us that the purposes of God will ultimately prevail. And that nothing in this world, no evil, no sin, no enemy, no divorce, not even ourselves, can get in the way and can separate Jesus from his bride, the church. And so let's pray, and then we will start into this this wonderfully painful process of talking about marriage and divorce. Father God, we, we need your help. We need your help. Every Sunday, I need your help, Lord, but, but as we come to a text like this, God, it can be so emotionally charged because just bringing up the topic of marriage, bringing up the topic of divorce, it just brings, Lord, past memories, past hurt, past pain uh, that we have all experienced. And so, and so Spirit, just ask for your grace. Um, Lord, I ask for those that need to be comforted that that this would be a word of of comfort. Lord, I ask for those that need to be convicted that this would be a word of conviction. Lord, we ultimately want to understand your purpose for marriage. We want to understand how our sin can mess that up. And we want to understand how your gospel redeems and rescues us from our sin and unites us with you. So help us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, look with me at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Okay, here we meet up with Jesus and his disciples again, and now they're starting to travel south from Galilee. They're starting to make their way to Jerusalem, and once again, the crowds gather around him, and as what he typically does as the crowds gather is he starts to teach them. However, the Pharisees have come with no intention to actually be taught by Jesus. They have actually come to try to trap Jesus. Okay, so the Pharisees here in this text, they don't really genuinely care what Jesus thinks about marriage and divorce. The, the, the scripture says they're trying to test him. They're trying to set a trap for him. And they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answers their question like any good teacher or even politician will by asking them a question, right? He turns around and he says, well, what did Moses command? And they said, hey, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and then send her away. And the passage that they were referring to was from Deuteronomy chapter 24. 
Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And so you see a controversy started amongst the rabbis and the Pharisees in that day as to what the word indecency really involved. Like how minor or how major does this indecency have to be uh, in order to uh, provide an acceptable reason for divorce? And so what happens anytime there's a good controversy? Two sides form and people start taking sides. And so in Jesus's day, there was the side of the school of Shammai, all right, Rabbi Shammai. This school of Shammai was a group of rabbis uh, that were more conservative in nature, and they taught that divorce was was only allowable in the case of sexual immorality, okay? Sexual immorality, adultery, any sort of sexual sin, the school of Shammai taught that that was an acceptable reason for divorce. But then on the other side of the controversy, you had the school of Hillel, okay? Which was, that was the popular school of thought in the time of Jesus, the school of Hillel. And it was more of a liberal group of rabbis that taught this indecency could even be a very minor offense, and so they wanted to stretch the meaning of this word indecency to allow for easy divorces. Now, now, men, be careful here how you respond to what I'm about to say next, okay? I'm giving you a heads up. I'm about to say something. Do not respond in any way. Don't nod your head. Don't sigh. Don't elbow your spouse. Just don't breathe or move, okay? So listen, the school of Hillel taught that you could even divorce your wife if she cooked a bad meal. Now, if you moved, that was your fault. I said, don't move. Be careful, all right? The school of Hillel also taught that you could divorce your wife if you found someone that was more attractive than her. So essentially, this, this one side of the controversy, which was the popular school of thought in Jesus' day, it was the school of thought that these Pharisees probably were in. They essentially said, if you don't like how your wife looks or cooks, you can divorce her. And so they ask Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So the trap has been set for Jesus. Because you see, if he sides with the conservative side, he will be going against the popular opinion of the day. He will be going against Herod, who uh, divorced his wife and, or, and married his brother's wife, and John the Baptist had called him out on it. And as a result, John the Baptist got imprisoned and eventually beheaded. And so the Pharisees are thinking, hey, if Jesus sides with this conservative side, you know, maybe he'll get imprisoned and beheaded like John the Baptist. But then if he sides with the more liberal side, uh, they could maybe try to catch him up and say he was defying what Moses actually taught. And so you have to see here, the Pharisees, they're not really interested in what Jesus has to teach them. They're just trying to catch him in a trap. They take a controversy and they make him try to pick sides, which side of the controversy he's going to choose. And so the trap has been set. But while they wanted to talk about divorce, Jesus wants to instead teach them about marriage. 
And so that's primarily what we're going to talk about today is marriage. Jesus primarily wants to teach them about God's purpose for marriage. And to do that, he takes them back to the beginning. Because look where he goes in Mark 10, verse 5. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, Jesus is trying to help them see that, that yes, because of sin, because of our hardness of heart, God has given us some guidelines about what, is, what are acceptable reasons for divorce and what are not acceptable reasons. And we will get to those in a moment. But before that, before sin entered the world, God had instituted this thing called marriage. And it was a beautiful and gracious gift that he gave us. And he wants us to understand his purpose for marriage in our lives, okay? He wants us to understand his purpose for marriage in our lives, and he wants us to understand how it fits into his redemptive story. And so to understand God's purpose in joining a man and woman together, which sounds like a crazy idea, but it was God's idea, to do that, we have to go back to the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip back to the book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible, and we're going Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the first book, Genesis 1, verse 27. Genesis 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so first, God creates male and female. He creates them both in the image of God as image bearers on earth. And he gave them instruction, right, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to reflect his glory amongst creation, to be representative rulers for him over what he created, and to cultivate creation to take care of it. When a king or a ruler wants people in a land to know who is ruling over that land, what does the king do? The king builds a statue of himself in that land to say, I rule over this land, okay? In the same way, God wanting creation to know who rules over this land, he created men and women to bear his image, to be representatives, to proclaim that God rules this land. We reflect his glory. We reflect that he is king and ruler over his creation. And so he, he creates a man and a woman, and he puts them on earth to take care of his creation, uh, to steward it well, to reflect his glory, and to proclaim that he rules in this land. They're both equally created in the image of God, male and female. They're both equal in dignity, in value, and worth, and yet he creates them distinctly different, and we cannot ignore that fact. They were made equally distinct by God. And then in Genesis chapter 2, flip to Genesis chapter 2, because we see God's going to do something crazy, right? He's going to put them together. And this is the first marriage that we see on the face of the earth, and it's Genesis 2, verse 24. And it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
Now that word one, in the original language, in the Hebrew, it's the same word to declare that our God is one. And we know that our God exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but they are so close in communion and fellowship with one another that we have one God. And in the same way, in a marriage, God takes a man and a woman, two distinct persons, and he makes them one. Makes them one. In the same way that God is one, so a man and a woman in marriage are one. They go from two to one. They go from two bank accounts to one bank account. They go from two households to one household. They go from two wills and dreams and hopes and desires for the future to one dream and hope and will and desire for the future. What God is doing in marriage, he's taking a man, he's taking a woman, and he's making them one with a desire that these two that have become one that they would be one for life, right? What God has joined together, let not man separate. It's for life. Also, God's desire for a man and woman who have come together in marriage is that they would be in a monogamous relationship, that they would not join their bodies or emotions with any other person outside of their marriage, right? even to some degree cut that emotional umbilical cord with their parents and just be one with their spouse. Now, this is not the only way to reflect the glory of God to the world. Unmarried people, single people are image bearers as well, but a man and a woman who are married have this opportunity to reflect in their oneness In their oneness, they reflect an aspect of the image of God and the glory of God to the world. They bear the image of of our Trinitarian God, who is three persons, but is one. And in their oneness, people will see them, and they will know. They'd be like statues of kings, right? That they, They would know in their oneness, man, God rules over this place. Can't you tell pretty quickly when you go into a house who rules that place, right? You go into some homes, and it's very obvious the kids rule that place, right? I mean, it's like Lord of the Flies, every person for themselves. Uh, this is my city group on a Wednesday night if everyone's there, right? If you want to taste, right? It's just, it's like the Wild West, okay? Right? Like some homes you walk into, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, the kids must rule here. Then you walk into other houses, and maybe the husband's just very passive and distant and off in another room, and it becomes very clear uh, that the wife rules the house. And then you go into some houses and and the man's just very controlling and domineering and, and, and kind of the macho guy. And you're like, oh, okay, so the guy rules this house. But church, none of those examples are how it's supposed to be. People should see our oneness in marriage. People should see our oneness in marriage alongside one another, two becoming one. They should see that oneness and they should know, wow, Jesus rules here. This must be his land. This must be his marriage. This must be his home. Like if we are bearing his image, people should see our lives and know that Jesus rules here. Should be the same with our church. Should be the same in our homes. People should see us reflect and bear the image of God and know that he 
is the ruler here. But not only are we image bearers of God in our oneness and marriage, but Paul will later tell us in his letter to the Ephesians that a husband and a wife are also reflections of the sacrificial love of Christ for his bride, the church. Like God joining husbands and wives together is ultimately pointing to the glorious union of Christ and his people. And so I'm going to read a passage from Ephesians. We're going to have the text up on the screen. And all of us need to hear this, but I want the husbands to really feel the weight of this, okay? And so all the husbands, I'm going to ask you guys to stand up right now, okay? So if you are a married man, husbands, I want you to stand up. This text is for all, all people to hear, but husbands, you need, to feel, you need to feel the weight of this a little bit. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And here it is again. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You may be seated, husbands. This mystery is profound, right? A man leaving his father and mother and becoming one with his wife. It is a picture. It is a glimpse. It is a pointer to the union of Christ and his bride, the church. Tim and uh, Kathy Keller, in their book, The Meaning of Marriage, they write this. The reason that marriage is so painful and yet wonderful is because it is a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful all at once. Like, isn't this true? I mean, sometimes marriage is painfully wonderful, and sometimes it's wonderfully painful, right? But there is both pain and wonder associated with it because it is a reflection of the gospel. Our marriages are to be gospel presentations to the people around us. Husbands are to sacrificially love their, li- their wives as Christ loved the church. And husbands, how did Christ love the church? He died for her. He laid down his life for her. That's not easy. That's a painful process. That's that's a painfully wonderful process to try to love your your wife as Christ loved the church. You're going to need to rely on the Holy Spirit to do that. You're going to need some grace to do that. He laid down his life for her, and Jesus, Jesus nourishes and cherishes his bride. 
a husband and a wife who love Jesus and are selflessly loving and serving one another are reflecting the sacrificial love of Jesus to the world around them. Their marriage is proclaiming the gospel. Now, it's not always easy. It's many times painful. It's many times wonderful. And it's both of those things all at the same time. Now listen, two people becoming one, like God is one, and reflecting the glory of God to creation, proclaiming the gospel to the world, right? Being a reflection of the gospel to the world. That sounds awesome, right? Like who wouldn't want that? That's a great. But what happens to our marriages? What happens to our marriages? He leaves the toilet seat up, and she falls in in the middle of the night. She tries to finish his sentences, but is always way off, and he just gets frustrated. He has a very different idea as to how their finances should be handled than she does. She has hopes and dreams and aspirations for the future, but his are very different. He has expectations that have never been expressed, but they're not being met, and he wonders if he maybe made a mistake when he got married. She thought there was nothing worse than loneliness, and then she married him, and now longs to be alone. He starts letting his eyes and his mind wander, away from the wife that God has given him, and he starts fantasizing about what it would be like to be with someone else. She grows discontent and disappointed uh, with the aspirations of her husband, and she sees other men on social media who seem to have it more well put together and have better careers, and she starts to fantasize about what life would be like with this other person. And those thoughts lead to flirting, that lead to inappropriate connections or interactions that lead to emotional acts of adultery that lead to physical acts of adultery. And so while Jesus here is teaching us his good purpose for marriage when it was first created, Jesus is also going to teach us how to deal with the mess of when sin enters into a marriage and distorts God's original good intent and purpose for it. Look back in Mark chapter 10. Go ahead and flip back to Mark chapter 10. We come to verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now listen, Jesus is very clearly speaking against the popular opinion of the people that you can just divorce your spouse for any reason, right? That, that school of Hillel, right? If you don't like how she cooks, you don't ha like how she looks, it's this idea of easy divorce. He's, he's speaking against that. Jesus says, no, if you divorce your wife and marry another, you are committing adultery, which adultery might not seem like a big deal to us in our culture, but in that one, adultery was punishable by death. 
And so it's a big deal, big consequence. But the question then arises, is divorce ever allowed? Are there ever biblical grounds for divorce? And in Matthew's account, in the parallel passage, Matthew adds a detail that Mark does not. And we'll have this passage up on the screen. So this is the same account, but it's, it's uh, Matthew uh, uh, writing it. And this is Jesus speaking again. He says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So in Matthew's account, we see this exception clause that Mark does not include. And the thought as to why Mark does not include it is because Mark's original audience would already have assumed that it was allowable to divorce someone for sexual immorality. That was the conservative group of Shammai. And Mark would have assumed that his readers would have, would have known and assumed that. But Matthew wants to go a step further in detail and, and, and really, really point out that, that Jesus gives this exception clause for divorce. And so it would seem that Jesus does allow, however not require, divorce in the case of sexual immorality. And sexual immorality would include adultery um, as well as other sexual sins. And so if a spouse had committed a sexual sin and broken the marriage covenant in that way, then a spouse was free or allowed to divorce. Another, another reason that God's word teaches is acceptable for divorce is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, he writes, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And so he was saying to the church in Corinth, if you are married to an unbeliever, you should not divorce them because they're an unbeliever, but you should win them over for Christ. By them seeing you how Christ has changed you and seeing your faith, many spouses end up coming to faith in Jesus. But Paul then was writing to them and saying, but if the unbelieving spouse separates and abandons you, then you are freed from that marriage. And so to recap, we see divorce being allowed by Jesus for sexual immorality. We see divorce being allowed by Paul in the case of abandonment, where the spouse has has been left and abandoned. And then the question often comes up nowadays as to in the case of abuse, whether physical or emotional abuse, whether or not that's allowable for divorce. And there are some different thoughts on this. Uh, because the Bible does not uh, specifically address the issue. Uh, But certainly I believe in the case of abuse that the one being abused needs to separate themselves from the abuser, uh, that the police need to be involved. And while every case is a little different, I would say many cases of abuse fall under that abandonment issue because the abusing spouse has abandoned their marital covenant to their spouse. They've they've abandoned their vows that they took as... um, as a husband or as a wife. And so there's differing thoughts about the cases of abuse, whether or not it's allowed. I would say many times it would fall under the case of abandonment. Okay. So mainly in the Bible, we see marriages allowed to be ended 
in the case of sexual immorality, in the case of abandonment, as well as in the case of death. And that might be an obvious one, but I thought I'd throw it in there, okay? Romans 7, Paul states that when one spouse dies, the other is freed to marry. Now, nobody get any ideas uh, walking out of here, okay? The Bible does speak against uh, murder and things like that, all right? So don't get any ideas. Uh, it, but, but, uh, but listen, if your spouse just took a life insurance policy out on you, and now they're asking you to get up on the roof and clean the gutters every day, uh, I would be a little concerned about that, okay? I would be a little concerned about that. Um, so to recap, if a person has been sinned against by a spouse who has committed sexual immorality— if a spouse has abandoned them or died, the person, they are free to remarry. However, Jesus is saying if they divorce for illegitimate reasons, Jesus says if they were to marry someone else, they would be committing adultery. And this is the warning for us because the popular opinion in our culture and even amongst many Christians is that you can just divorce your spouse for any reason, right? People want divorces now because maybe they're just incompatible with their spouse. Or maybe their spouse is a toxic person. Maybe financially their spouse isn't getting them where they want to be and they found someone else that can make more money and so they want to then uh, divorce and remarry. Or many people say things like they've just fallen out of love with their spouse. The physical intimacy isn't what it used to be. Or maybe they feel like they just married the wrong person, right? Listen, you did marry the wrong person, and so did your spouse. There was only one right person that walked on the face of the earth, and humanity put him on a cross, okay? And so you did marry the wrong person, and your spouse married the wrong person, and we need Jesus' help, all right, to be the husbands and the wives that he has called us to be. I want to share with you guys a quote from a, a Duke University ethics professor, Stanley Auervoss, and I think we've got it here. This is what he says. He says, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. You see, the reason we had to start with Genesis and the reason we had to go to Ephesians is because we had to first understand something about the purpose of marriage. And that is this. Marriage is not primarily about you. Life is not primarily about you. 
And so certainly your marriage is not primarily about you. And I say that a lot in sermons because you keep living like it is, right? And so listen, life and marriage is not about you. But what sin does, what does sin do to us? It causes us to turn in on ourselves. It causes us to become self-absorbed and self-centered. And when we become self-absorbed and when we become self-centered and when we turn in on ourselves, it also makes us very, very miserable because we were not designed to live that way. And so people who live this way, they think they are miserable in marriage. They're not miserable in marriage. They're just miserable in life. And it takes them a divorce and a remarriage and a divorce and a remarriage and a divorce and a remarriage to finally figure out, I wasn't miserable in marriage. I was just miserable in life because my sin has caused me to turn in on myself, to become self-absorbed and self-centered. You see, we know that we have all sinned. We all have this propensity to turn in on ourselves, and we need Jesus to rescue us from that. And so when two people who are turning in on themselves become self-absorbed and self-centered, when they get married, yes, they are both marrying the wrong person. Before Britt and I got married, we read the book uh, Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. And I'm pretty sure I read more than just the cover, but I mainly just remember the cover. Uh, But if you buy the book, the cover is worth uh, the purchase price, okay? Because on the cover of Sacred Marriage, Gary Thomas writes this. He writes, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Like, whoa, that's a big thought. Now, he's not saying there's no happiness in marriage. There certainly is. But he's saying, what if he designed it more for God to make us holy? Could it be that God instituted marriage to first reflect his rule and reign and oneness to the world? Could it be that God instituted marriage to proclaim the gospel and the sacrificial love of Christ to the world? And then could it be that he joined a man and a woman together to make them more like Jesus in order to prepare them to be joined together with him? for eternity. Could marriage be one of the tools that God is using to help us become more like Jesus? Now, it's not the only tool, but could it be one of the tools that he's using to make us more like Jesus? You see, the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners. And this salvation was accomplished by Jesus who being fully God and fully man, he came to earth and he lived the life of obedience we failed to live and he died a sacrificial death on a cross in our place, paying the penalty for our sin, releasing us from the power of sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death. And he proved that he was who he said he was. And he proved that the penalty for sin had been paid in full. God's wrath had been appeased and satisfied. And now he offers salvation to us by grace, just God's undeserved favor. There's nothing we can do to earn it or deserve it or work for it. It's all by God's grace. And he calls us to repent, to turn from our sin, to turn from our self-righteousness and to trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. And listen, when that happens, when the good news takes deep root in our life, 
When we rest in him for our salvation, when we rest in him for our identity and our satisfaction and our wholeness and our happiness, then you are freed from sin's propensity to make you turn in on yourself. You are freed from a life that has to be all about you. And you are freed to follow after Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. Such a good verse, such a big verse. Speaking of Jesus, it says, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Church, the gospel frees us from just living for ourselves. The gospel frees us from living for ourselves in our singleness. The gospel frees us from living for ourselves in marriage. I mean, just imagine what a marriage could look like when two people are not living for themselves. Like that would be a marriage people would see and say, man, Jesus must rule that marriage. They've been freed from living for themselves. Now, there are some who would say, well, okay, Grant, I've heard kind of the biblical reasons that that we're allowed to divorce, but I'll just divorce my spouse for unbiblical reasons, and then I'll ask God to forgive me later, right? Because God has to do that. He has to forgive us, right? Now, listen, divorce is not the unforgivable sin, And those who have been divorced for unbiblical reasons, you should confess that sin and and trust that you can find forgiveness in God. But listen, if you're considering a divorce or thinking that you can just get out of this and then just ask God's forgiveness later, listen, ask anyone who has gone through a divorce, whether it be biblical or unbiblical, ask them just the amount of pain that it caused in their life. Because any time you separate what God has joined together, right? He's made two into one. Any time you split the one back into two, it leaves incredible amounts of pain. And it hurts not only you, but it hurts all those around you. You see, uranium, it was discovered about 200 years ago. Uranium is the heaviest metal that can be mined on Earth. And in 1938, scientists discovered that an atom of uranium can be broken down into two or three pieces. It can be split when struck by a fast-moving particle called a neutron. All right? Stick with me, okay? So the splitting of a uranium atom releases a great deal of energy, and it releases more neutrons that split more atoms. And so very quickly, you get a multiplication effect of, of energy and And this is what provides the devastating energy of an atomic bomb, okay? Listen, when God joins two into one, and when that one is split, even when it's for biblical reasons, it is like an atomic bomb going off. Like people get hurt, kids get hurt, churches get hurt, And there's pain for years and years to come. Now, for those of you who are married, 
Understand that your marriage, it's not ultimately about you. But you were made to reflect the glory of God and the love of Christ for his church to the world through your marriage, through your oneness, through your sacrificial love for one another. And this wonderfully painful process of living with someone who is the complete opposite of you, it's actually making you more like Jesus. It's getting you ready to be joined together with him. And for those of you that have been divorced, and divorced for, for biblical reasons, your spouse has, has committed sin against you or has abandoned you, listen, the pain that you have experienced, this splitting of the atom that you have endured, it is never wasted with God. God knows what it's like to have an unfaithful spouse. And yet, he will always be faithful to you. Your past divorce does not make you a second-class citizen in the church or in the kingdom of God. It does not inhibit you from being involved as a member or as a leader in the church. And if divorce was for biblical reasons, you are free to remarry. But my prayer is that the glory of God would shine through any wound that has been left by divorce in your life. And that you would look to Christ alone, you would remember that it is by his wounds that he suffered so that yours would be healed. Now for those of you who've been divorced in the past for unbiblical reasons, listen, I don't want you to hear condemnation from me this morning. I don't. But if you've been divorced in the past for unbiblical reasons, what I would encourage you to do is deal with it like we deal, like, like how we deal with any other sin. We first confess it to God, right? If you haven't done that yet, confess your sin to God and then go to your former spouse and confess your sin to them. Confess it to your kids. Ask for forgiveness and God's word says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is not the unforgivable sin, but it does need to be recognized and dealt with like all sin is dealt with. We confess it, we repent and turn from it, we ask forgiveness, and then we trust and rest that Christ's sacrifice on the, Christ, on the cross paid the penalty for that sin. So give it to him. You can rest in that. And for those of you who are single, know that marriage here on earth, it's not the only way that God makes us more like Christ. And know that marriage here on earth, it's, it's not even the ultimate marriage that we're being prepared for. So I said the Bible started with a marriage and ends with a marriage. So we're going to close with this. Everyone turn to the book of Revelation. And Joshua and Tim, you guys can go ahead and, and you guys can come back up here. But everyone else, go and turn to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Very last book of the Bible, Revelation. Revelation 19, verse 6. 
And it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. You see, in order for us to understand the marriage supper of the Lamb, we have to understand typical wedding customs of people in that culture, okay? Usually a wedding had three parts. The first part was when the parents of the bride and the groom signed a marriage covenant and the groom would pay the bride's family a dowry, something like a bunch of goats or some money. Uh, Many of you who have young girls, you get pretty psyched when we bring up the topic of a dowry. You think it should be reinstituted. Uh, I don't think it's that great. I don't see the need for it. Uh, But... So that's the first part of the wedding, right? Okay, they, the dowry has been paid. You've entered into covenant. That's the start of the engagement process, okay? Then the second part was months or even a year later. And what would happen is the groom would come to the bride's house at midnight. He would come with his friends. Uh, she would be waiting with her friends and they would take torches out into the street and they would parade through the streets. They would dance. They would celebrate on the way to the groom's house. Then when they got to the groom's house, that was the third part. That was when family and friends would have a marriage supper that would go on for days and sometimes weeks of just celebrating and feasting and enjoying and and, and, and again, just, just enjoying what God had blessed and given in this marriage. Okay, three parts. So listen, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, Whether you are married, divorced, single, remarried, you have now been adopted into the church, which is also called the bride of Christ. And for guys, if you feel weird about that, you're just going to have to get over it, okay? It actually is a beautiful thing, but I realize it seems weird at first, all right? You have been adopted as the bride of Christ, and the first part of the wedding has already taken place when Christ paid the dowry on the cross. And when you received him as your Savior, you entered into an engagement. You entered into a covenant it with him. And so to give you a, a picture of where we're at on the timeline, we are now anxiously awaiting and making ourselves ready for Jesus to arrive. We're longing for, we're looking for, we're getting ready for Jesus to return because we know that we are going to dance and feast and celebrate forever with Christ in eternity. And so listen, we might in some circumstances be allowed to separate the marriages that God has joined together here on earth. But we know that the purposes of God will ultimately prevail and that nothing in this world, no evil, no sin, no divorce, no person, not even ourselves, will be able to separate Jesus from his bride, the church. Nothing and no one will be able to separate the marriage of Christ and the church. What God has joined together, let man not separate. Let's pray.